We're in Romans chapter 12. And we wrap up our study of Romans 12 today. We're going to read starting at verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's Word. And the Word of God, the Bible never sugarcoats the truth. From the very outset, we discover that life among fellow humans is going to involve conflict, not just a little bit of conflict, but some significant difficulty for sure. It takes us all the way to Genesis 4 to figure this out. The original family, Genesis chapter 4, what happens? Cain kills his brother Abel out of spite and out of envy. In fact, just because really Abel was a better man than him. That is all the motive that was needed. So the Lord has to speak to his disciples about how we are to respond to hostilities and attacks, both big and small. We live in a dangerous world with dangerous people, and some of them hate us, even though we serve one called the Prince of Peace. If you look at an overview of Scripture, which biblical hero is there who escaped persecution, who escaped attack, who escaped trouble? Did Daniel? Let me give you a heads up. No. Okay. I, I can't think of any that did. Abel had Cain. Abraham faced opposition and ended up in fights several times. The sons of Jacob, they got in all kinds of skirmishes. And when they came out of Egypt, God sent the Hebrews away from a king who tried to kill them and toward other people with whom they were going to go to war. The kings and the prophets we read of next in Scripture, they were in constant battle within the kingdom and outside of the kingdom, and Daniel and his friends in Babylon were targeted for major injustice and death, and in the New Testament, it is no different. In fact, it is probably worse. Uh, John lost his head. Jesus, of course, was crucified. Peter, we think, was crucified upside down. Paul, we think, was beheaded, not to mention James and Stephen, the Prince of Peace. Ah, yeah, but we must be careful not to define that peace too vaguely. And you are aware that Jesus promised us conflict. He promised us that we get to be hated. So, we have enemies who hurt us, who hurt those we love. And how do you feel about uh, people who do that? Who hurt you? Who hurt your children? Who hurt your spouse? Who hurt your friends? What is your natural reaction to being mistreated? I'm listening, uh, I'm listening on Audible to the Alexander Dumas classic, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and it is a story, if you know it, uh, maybe you know it from the movie, it's a story of, of, of great evil perpetrated against a noble character followed by the revenge by that 
character, and it is an elaborate story of, of, of vengeance. It follows the classic lines of many novels and many movies. The story presents a good guy and a bad guy, and in most cases, the good guy is injured by the evil one, but then he triumphs in the end, right? Such a plot as that it pulls us in naturally because we are wired to long for justice which seems to necessitate revenge. By nature, we want to go after those who hurt us and who hurt others that we care about. So this is connected, I think, with the image of God that is in us, that we are. He is a God of justice, so we care about justice. But our passion in this arena, like everything else about us, our passion for justice, it's distorted by sin. That makes it doubly hard, but doubly important that we heed the Lord's admonition in this passage and others like it. We're told not to take revenge, not to make ourselves the agents of retribution. Now, we must follow this point with a certain degree of clarity and careful thinking. I hope that will govern everything else we talk about as we look here at the ethics of revenge. The point of clarity is that Paul here and elsewhere is speaking to us about seeking vengeance personally as individuals. Within the next few verses, as we get into Romans 13, we're going to see that the civil authority, the magistrate, is in fact assigned the job of punishing the wrongdoer. Romans 13 verse 4 says it does not, referring to the civil authority, does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God. It's a what? An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I've always liked this little photo that expresses what we read here. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, <laughs> but he subcontracts. Uh, he, he does indeed. God uh, is the ultimate judge, the ultimate punisher, but in this life, he expects that human societies will establish civil processes to promote order and to promote justice. These things are necessary because human beings are badly messed up. So the instruction to forego repayments of evil, that's for individuals only. That's not for governments, okay? It's not for governors. It's not for school principals. It's not for those who are in authority over particular groups. So if I'm officiating a basketball game and a player or a coach verbally abuses me or even shoves me, what am I to do? Well, I exercise my authority to maintain order and I punish the offender. That's my role at that point. Now, if I'm a player in the game or if I'm a fan in the stands, <laughs> my role in that way is entirely different. You see the difference there. Very important to get this. Oh, by the way, this applies to parents, okay? Uh, your role in your child's life requires that you not tolerate abuse, not of yourself, not of your spouse, not of the other children, not even the dog, okay? Uh, but listen, even here, the prevailing interest of that person that's in authority, it's not to exact vengeance. It's not to injure someone, but to bring about appropriate consequences, to teach vital lessons, to protect others, and to maintain order. Doing these things, uh, it's not easy. It is often complicated 
position to be in. I remember an occasion uh, in our Florida church, we figured out that money had been disappearing. We had cash boxes for this and that and the other, and, and money was disappearing, and so we set up cameras around the church office to see what they might tell us. And lo and behold, those cameras one day revealed a young man, member of our church, family very involved in our church, and he was stealing in his role as an assistant part-time janitor. And uh, what do I then, having discovered this, what do I as a pastor of the church do with regard to this young man? Was, was that a time to turn the other cheek, to speak to him about it, but nothing further? Well, that was not my choice. As the leader, I had to take into consideration the other parties whose money had been stolen. I had to also take into consideration other parties who may get robbed by this young man if he continues in this terrible practice. For the sake of the community as a whole and for the sake of the young man himself, we decided not only to fire him from his position, but we informed the police department about it in the hopes that some serious consequences would promote repentance. And thankfully, it seemed to have worked. Not too many years ago, Beth and I went into a church in our community, and this guy was ushering at that church, which I hope is a sign that he's still not pilfering from. <laughs> now, I didn't know if I needed to tell the pastor about that or not. But I think, yeah, this is long after he actually did get his life together with the Lord. Now, what I want you to see is that at that point, I was operating as an authority figure over the young thief and over the church that he stole from. But again, it can be sin complicates life, or sin makes life complicated. But I say again, in that situation, vengeance was far from my heart, but my role with respect to others was not. So consider that uh, many of our heroes in our culture and our church, many of our heroes are those who have forcefully advanced justice on our behalf, right? We revere the soldier. We revere the policeman. We revere the federal agent. We revere Superman. Someone, perhaps George Orwell, wrote this, People sleep peacefully in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. Let me say that again. People sleep peacefully in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. So it makes sense to celebrate those rough men, those brave magistrates, all of those who endeavor to secure our protection and our freedom. That said, we come back to the basic point of our text, that in individual relationships, we're not to be seeking vengeance. We don't make justice or don't take justice into our own hands. Uh, in fact, we are to show offenders love for Jesus' sake. John Piper tells a story from India of a missionary there by the name of Graham Staines. And Graham and two of his sons... Uh, 10 and 6, the boys were, were mobbed by radical Hindus trapped inside their vehicle and then burned to death inside their car. Graham had spent 34 years serving the people of India for Jesus' sake as director of the leprosy mission of Orissa. And he left behind his wife Gladys and a daughter, a teenage daughter. And the response of his widow was found, or found its way into every newspaper in, in India at the time. She said a few days after 
his death, quote, I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. She announced that she was staying in India to continue the ministry there. Her teenage daughter named Esther told reporters how she felt. She said, and I quote, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Well done. So we don't seek vengeance because we want others to find out about the love of Christ. We don't seek vengeance also because we are mindful that God will do that in due time. Everyone will find out eventually about the wrath of God. Look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So God is the judge of all the earth. Consider these teachings. He speaks of his wrath. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. In the 1730s, Jonathan Edwards in New England preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was mightily used of God to bring to pass repentance and actually, indeed, uh, the great awakening in our country. And his text in that incredible sermon, and by the way, you can access it on YouTube. It's not Jonathan, but they have people that are preaching it uh, <laughs> there. But uh, it's available for you if you want to listen to it, uh, or you can find it and read it. But uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. His text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. And again, you can see that God is not shy about claiming for himself the right and the responsibility of vengeance against those who oppose him and those who oppose his servants. One more to see, Psalm 94, verse 1. Oh, Lord, the God of vengeance, oh, God of vengeance, let your glorious justice shine forth. It is fine for the people of God to rejoice in God's justice and the judgments and retribution of the Lord, even as we rejoice in his love and goodness. It is not fine to make ourselves on our own initiative, his agents for this. We're not called to that unless God has appointed us to be civil magistrates. We are to rest ourselves in the power and the, uh, the position and the plan of God. Are you angry about evil people getting away with misdeeds? Maybe, maybe politicians. <laughs> maybe politicians who get away with evil. So, I mean, pick your villain in the political world. It could be Donald Trump. John Trump, it could be Joe Biden, it could be Putin. They're not going to get away with anything. Relax, relax. There's a wise and mighty and holy God on the throne. In due time, in due time, his glorious justice will shine forth. And so we praise him for his justice, and we relax in the confidence of it. All right, that's what we're called to do, promote peace to do what we can to get along. In the Beatitudes, Jesus called, uh, called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Uh, that's what God is. That's what the gospel does. It's a making of peace between God and sinners. And so we emulate him when we seek to break down relational barriers. So go to verse 18 of our passage where it says, If possible, 
so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Peace. That's what we are after. But, 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 there's a big problem here uh, that is only suggested in this verse, but it's made explicit in many places in God's Word. Peace-loving, gentle, respectful people are routinely despised and hated and opposed. Jesus told us to expect it. It happened with him. It'll happen with you. The basis for the conflict, however, it's not to be on our end, but on their end. But we understand that for some, our serving Christ, that will be sufficient to oppose us. Our stance relative to truth will annoy some, will offend some. Martin Luther comes to my mind. Martin Luther King Jr. could come to our mind as well. But let's go back to Martin Luther. He had this spectacular encounter with the glorious gospel of Jesus, and it got him in trouble with Rome. They drag him in front of a church court, and they say, you must recant of these terrible teachings of yours. So what is he to do now? Is he to pursue peace by capitulating to their demands? Does he forget what he has learned from the Word of God? Of course not. The goal is not peace at all costs. No, no. Peace at some cost, maybe, but not at the expense of the truth, not at the expense of the gospel, not at the expense of the lives of others. Martin Luther, he was afraid like anyone else would be, but what he said was this, unless I am convinced by either scripture or right reason for my conscience is held captive by the word of God, I cannot, I will not recant. For to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me, here I stand. I can do no other. He was saying that truth would not be sacrificed on the altar of unity or even on the altar of self-preservation. His peacemaking, it would only go so far. There are other values to maintain. So I hope all that addresses the ethics of revenge. And I want to spend a few minutes before we're done today looking at the emotions of revenge. But before we do that, I don't want to neglect verse 20 because it's an interesting verse. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> so the advice is clear. Look for ways to do good to someone who hurts you. We do that in the knowledge of God's love and God's justice, but verse 20 gives us an additional reason. Coals upon their head. Now, that doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Is Paul saying that by being nice to a bad person, you are making their judgment worse? Is that what he's saying? No. <laughs> I think he is. <laughs> I don't think he's suggesting that as our primary motive, however. It's just a consequence that does make sense. The more love, the more kindness that someone rejects in order to pursue their wicked goals, the greater will be their judgment. Now, many commentaries, as our brother in the back, disagree with me on this interpretation. They come up with other ways to understand coals upon the head. Uh, they think it's a feeling of shame, which someone might get when they are blessed by someone that they have missed treated. All right, I can go with that. However you take it, it does not affect the basic point about rejecting the impulse to pursue one's own revenge. That everybody, I think, can see and agree on. Now, let's think about the emotion behind revenge. Clearly, what's the emotion there? What are you feeling? I'm feeling anger, rage, 
could be righteous anger, often not, but uh, often also mixed. But the point is that we don't want the emotion to control our behavior. We want the ethic of Scripture to control our choices. For that to work, we have to keep our anger in its place. So let's look at three good principles for handling God's anger, God, or our anger God's way. And uh, you ready for this? Three, three quick ones. Principle number one, wait. What did I say? Wait. God's Word says to be slow to anger. We read of that earlier. It's also good to be slow when you are angry. Don't act too quickly. There are a slew of scriptural exhortations around this, most of them found in the book of Proverbs, such as Proverbs 29, 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. So you see your anger, it's like a raging horse ready to attack. Your job is not to let him loose, but to hold him back and, and let all of that, and then control all of that energy and, and make it productive. For some people, their anger gets the best of them, and it reveals the worst of them. Uh, and there's nothing they can do about it. But Christians have hope because here we are granted by God the infilling of His Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control, also patience. Proverbs 16, 32, I love this. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The wicked man is not slow about, uh, he's not slow with respect to his temper. He cannot wait to express his anger. He doesn't control his anger. His anger controls him. Mommy, why do the idiots only come out when daddy's driving? <laughs> because dad speaks his mind without passing things through a filter. Listen, the best rule for most of us with quick tempers is to just say nothing, at least at first. When something sets you off and you feel the adrenaline surging and your pulse quickening, that's not the best time to make wise and godly evaluations. No, no. If at all possible, delay your response. Silence, it may not be the best response, but if you say something, it should be better than saying nothing. And often when I'm angry, I cannot think of anything to say that is better than saying nothing. So I keep my trap shut until I come up with something good. At least that's the plan. So this is crucial. In his Rules for Living, Thomas Jefferson said, when angry, count to 10. When very angry, count to 100. Principle number one is wait. Principle number two is think. This is what you're supposed to do while you're waiting, by the way. The key uh, verse for all of this is uh, Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. And I want to give you some guidance for your pondering. The first, uh, you think about the offense, the thing that bothers you. So, And see if you cannot penetrate beyond your feeling to see why someone did what they did. What is going on in that person that makes him or her act that way? How can they be so rude? How can they be so cruel? Well, there's lots of possible reasons. Maybe they acted out of ignorance. Uh, maybe they aren't aware that they would be hurting you or someone by what they did. More often than not, when I think through what someone has done, I discover their mistreatment of me was rooted in some pain that they have gone through or are going through. They're hurting over a major disappointment. And as a result, they're lashing out at others. Now, we don't excuse that. That person is still responsible for their behavior and their choice. But understanding 
the why it can make a difference in my attitude when I see that. So my anger can be diluted with pity. Second thing for you to think about is your own response. Figure out what is going on inside of you. Larry Crabb says that every angry or frustrated response is due to a goal being blocked, a personal goal that somebody is interfering with. Uh, and I, I think he's on to something there. And he suggests that typically when we realize that, we'll realize it's not really a legitimate goal that we should be pursuing. Now, when my goal is rest and ease, <laughs> it's easy for me to get annoyed. Uh, but the problem is my inappropriate goal, right? The problem is in me. So get over this business of thinking that the cause of your anger is out there. What makes you angry? Well, it's my these kids, my boss, the government. <laughs> it's not out there. It's right here. The aggravating stuff out there just reveals what is in here. And before you even address that aggravation, address the aggravatee. Consider if your anger is not just rooted in your pride and in the bad goals that it generates. That's why it's good to talk your anger over with the Lord. Talk it over with Him before you approach anyone else about it. You know, you read the Psalms, you discover David frequently dumping on God about how mistreated David was. That's what God wants us to do when we're feeling mistreated. Talk to him about it. David was a model of patience and forbearance in his relationships because he took his problems to the Lord. Typically, when I do that, the problems dissolve. The anger subsides, and when it does not, then I plan out with the Father what steps I need to take. So, principle number two is to think, and thinking for us should include prayer. Principle number three is to love. You wait, you think, you love. Too often we respond in pride. We act to regain something we've lost. What, uh, when we spend time thinking about the anger, when we spend time thinking about the aggravation, we have to be asking the right questions. God doesn't want us thinking selfishly or proudly or vindictively. Be angry, but do not sin. Some folks, you know, take time to think only so they can sin more effectively. <laughs> really. Uh, I heard a story about a, a Virginia woman who found the family dog standing motionless on the porch one morning and the dog had been killed and then stuffed by her angry ex-husband. He'd obviously given the matter some thought. He didn't do that impulsively, but his thinking was devoid of love. So as we ponder how to respond to the question, uh, the question or how to respond to people, the question is not, how can I get revenge, but how can I express love for Jesus' sake? That's what our passage for today is all about. It reminds us that God is in the justice business, and if God will take care of the justice, then you and I, we're free to do what? Concentrate on mercy. You do not have to be the great avenger. You are to overcome evil with good. Again, Proverbs 15, 28 said that. The mouth of, is that the right? The mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. It just emotes all over the place. But, I think there's a second part there, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. The wise person waits and thinks and then acts and speaks in love.
All right, I'm going to close with a personal testimony here for a number of years now. The message I send myself when I'm provoked, <laughs> uh, that I want to send myself anyway, is this. It's, it's a three-point sermon that I give myself, okay? Uh, the acrostic is Suscrol. I'll explain it to you. It goes like this. Shut up. Stay calm. You are loved. Shut up. Stay calm. You are loved. First point. Shut up. Now, you may not prefer the rough language there, but the point is uh, here to wait. Don't make things worse by speaking too quickly. And next, I remind myself to stay calm. Uh, for, for me, this reminds me that uh, I don't want my emotions to lead. Leave with my head, not uh, my emotions, which is the same as our second point, which is think, right? So wait, think. Don't emote, think, okay? And then the third point emerges from the gospel. You are loved. Uh, that sounds different than a reminder to love each other, but really it results in the same thing. What I find is that my capacity to love you is undermined when I forget that I myself am very much loved. If I feel that my well-being is threatened in some significant way, I can't really love you very well. But when I am walking in confidence that a mighty shepherd is taking care of me, then I will love you well as I am loved well. So shut up, stay calm, you are loved. In the end, it goes back to the gospel. It goes back to our trust in the promise of God that our sins are covered and we are far more loved than we could ever possibly imagine. The devastating problem of human anger is resolved through the death and the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this gospel, we must remember at those decisive critical moments in our relationships, that isn't so easy to do. And I certainly will not suggest that you will find success at doing this overnight, but you keep applying the lessons of God's Word, Romans 12 included, and you will notice a change. Uh, thank God there is forgiveness along the way. So when you blow it, don't give up, don't give in, confess your sin to God, maybe to others as well, receive His grace, and press on to becoming that man or that woman whose spirit is under control. In doing that, we will avoid the trap of vengeance. We will learn to love others well. We will please our Father, and we will frustrate the devil. And all of that is sweet and good.